our task as composers is to imagine it, not to hear it externally necessarily, but to imagine it, to locate how we're hearing it in our heads, to write it down, and then give it to the performers. This is Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. Today on the podcast, we've got John Mirasola's interview with the composer Marty Epstein, who's been on the faculty at Berkeley for almost 30 years, and since 2008 has taught at both the college and the conservatory. As you'll hear in this episode, Marty's music has this unpredictable, dreamlike quality to it. And there's a really fascinating bit in the conversation where Marty unpacks what it means to make what she calls unimaginable music, how a piece of music can create its own unique world. They cover a ton of other ground here, too, from how Marty developed her opera, Rumpelstiltskin, to why she tells her students not to use a computer to compose music. She also talks about finding inspiration in other artworks, such as Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And fun fact, like Marty, John and I also read Moby Dick for a book club. And while we could have gone deeper, we've tried to keep the nerding out to a minimum. Anyway, here's John Mirasola speaking with Marty Epstein. Marty, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wanted to start off with uh, something you said elsewhere, which is that early in your own education as a composer, when you were first really encountering um, the landscape of 20th century classical music, you were thrilled by this idea that, in your words, music could be completely unimaginable. So I wanted to ask, what does that mean to you to make unimaginable music? Well, it means a lot of things um, that we probably don't have enough time to to go into in great detail. But uh, for me, music does not represent concrete, specific things. To me, music creates a world that um, that it does not exist before it's imagined by the composer. So I know there are plenty of composers even as far back as before Bach and people like that, who have used music to portray something specific and concrete. And of course, there's film music and things like that. But um, if you think about, for example, a Mahler symphony, that's creating a world that is completely its own thing. And it's something that you've never heard before until you hear that symphony. And that's, that's what I'm interested in. I don't, want, I don't want my music to sound like a concrete, specific thing that you can say, oh, that sounds like a car horn or, or whatever. I want it to sound like a world or, or an environment, a sound environment that you've, you've never heard before. You can't imagine. It creates a whole world for you, invites you into this world, and uh, gives you an experience that you couldn't have otherwise. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, in in a lot of ways, it sounds very similar to how I've heard people describe uh, sorts of abstract expressionist painting or sculpture and things like that, where the idea is not to be representative, but rather to create uh, an aesthetic experience that you can only access in that medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and that you can't necessarily anticipate either. You you hear the the piece. And of course, if you listen to my music, it all has, I think, a stamp of me. Um, but you can't know what the piece is going to sound like before you hear it the first time. It's every piece has its own world, hopefully. It has in, in that way it creates a sort of dream logic, uh, you might say, that there's when you're dreaming, um, things sort of only make sense in the world of that dream. Exactly. And 
I think that you're going to ask me about the opera Rumpelstiltskin, right? Mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons why it was actually extremely difficult for me to write this opera because my music then, or, or I should say therefore, doesn't tend to have a clear narrative structure. And yet here I am writing an opera um, about this story that a lot of people know, and it, and just by virtue of the fact that it's a story, it has a clear narrative structure. So I found that to be the biggest challenge, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the libretto myself, so I could try to marry the way I normally compose with um, what was necessary for this narrative. And so how did you manage that tension? That's a really good question. I tried, I mean, first of all, it's a fairy tale. So it's it's not something that could ever actually happen in real life. Hmm. So when I was commissioned to write this opera for Guerrilla Opera, I purposely chose a fairy tale for that reason. I didn't want to choose any kind of real life story because I didn't want to try to use my music to portray something that could really happen. Um, and so that's the first way that I manage that. And then the second way is that there's a a part of the opera in the first scene where all four characters, um, Rumpelstiltskin, the girl who ends up doing the spinning, um, the king, and the girl's father, they're all singing their own thoughts all at once. And you can't really hear the words. You can't really hear unless you're focusing on one of the people or on, on each one of the people at a time, you can't really tell what they're singing. And so I created, often in the opera, I created the situation where you're feeling what's happening. You feel what's probably going on, but it's not given to you in a specific, clear way that you can understand. Hmm. Let's let's talk more about that opera then. Um, so... The opera is called Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, it's set to be performed by Guerrilla Opera at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. this month. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's a little over a decade after it premiered in Boston. What's it been like to revisit the production? That's such a great question. So it was premiered in uh, 2009, I believe, and then left alone until last year. Last year... Guerrilla Opera approached me about trying to do something with shadow puppets because I have a very dear friend, Denise Khateri, who's an Iranian theater artist. She now lives in New York. And she does she has done shadow puppets for other pieces of mine. And Guerrilla Opera approached me about maybe trying to collaborate with her on this. And so the first thing I should say is that my piece is extremely difficult for the singers to memorize and then have to act out. So we were trying to find a way that they could be on book. You know, mm -hmm. they could have the music and not have to memorize it, but somehow find a way to portray the action. So um, looping Denise in to portray what's going on with the shadow puppet seemed like a very logical thing. So we did that last March, but then she uses a, an old technology. She uses overhead projectors to project her puppets, and the one that she had broke. Oh, no. And then we actually couldn't—we have a few at Boston Conservatory, but either the bulbs were burnt out or it, it, it's an old technology that it seemed very obvious that it was not tenable to try to continue doing it in that way. So— she brilliantly made an animation of the shadow puppets, and it's actually much more beautiful even than the puppets themselves were. And so we showed it in New York in May, 
with the animation, with the video of the of the puppets, and it's unbelievable. It's really gorgeous. And that's the version that we're going to be showing in Washington. And so what it's been like for me is that I've been able to really hear what the music actually sounds like with the singers. This is nothing against the original singers, but the singers singing the right notes at the right time, because now not only do they have the music, but they have a conductor. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's so much better for everybody this way. And it's so much more interesting, you know, talking about me wanting to be more abstract and not wanting to have a clear, definable narrative, having shadow puppets represent the story instead of actually acting the story out is much more in line with the way I think about the music. Hmm. I'd like to talk about another one of your pieces, which is Oil and Sugar, mm-hmm. um, which you had suggested perhaps we use a, a clip of that for mm-hmm. this show. Could you just say a few words about that piece specifically? How did it come about? First, it was a commission from four friends of mine, um, Donald Berman for, on piano, Ronnie Moore on clarinet, Sarah Brady on flute, and Gabby Diaz on violin. And they asked me for this piece to go on a concert they were doing of other composers whom I know. And around the same time, and, and by the way, this is something that happens to me a lot, I was at the ICA, Institute of Contemporary Art, and I saw this video called Oil and Sugar by an artist named Kedar Atia. And this um, this video is of a giant pile of sugar cubes, and he pours motor oil on it. And then the video is basically what happens to the sugar cubes as the motor oil starts to disintegrate them. And what you see is this sort of clumping together of the sugar and then it sort of falls in on itself and then there are all these little glints of light as the camera lights are are catching the sugar as it's dissolving it's very beautiful and very evocative to me it's it's actually about something very political for him and it's about colonization and the meaning of oil and all of these things i didn't necessarily respond to the political aspects of it i wanted to respond to the visual aspects of it. And as I was standing there watching it, I started to hear music in my head. This happens to me a lot. It was suggesting Mm. music to me. And the music was, you know, basically what I ended up trying to uh, figure out how to write for this ensemble. So I decided since the music I'm writing for this concert was inspired by the video Oil and Sugar, I decided to name it that. So your compositions often begin with some sort of um, phrase or, or tone that you hear just kind of in your head, and then you're, you're sort of chasing that down on the page? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's even at once more vague and more detailed than that. I, I usually hear—so first of all, I'm usually inspired by something visual— in almost every piece, sometimes it's something um, relating to literature. I have a lot of pieces that have titles that come from Moby Dick, my favorite book. Um, 
But what happens to me is I, I'm sort of living with the instruments that I need to be writing for, and I'm hearing them in my head, and something starts to coalesce, which is, you know, it's, it's a sound world. It's more vague and more broad than just a tone or a chord. It's more like a, a texture. I, I don't know if I have synesthesia per se, but it's often something that I can sort of feel in my hands or something that has lots of color. And I will often draw it and I'll, I'll draw a map of how I think the piece is going to go. And then the very last thing I do is find the specific pitches and rhythms that will give me this sound world. I, I keep wanting to call it a sound cloud, but now, of course, sound cloud means something else entirely. Um, but that that's sort of how I proceed. And I know it's really hard for me to describe that in a way that people who aren't me can understand. Uh -huh. But that's that's how it goes, usually. This is the tiniest bit of a tangent, but it looks like we've got time. I'm curious why Moby Dick is your favorite book. It's not really that much of a tangent, actually. It, it definitely relates. So, to, to give you a little background, I am in two book groups. Um, the first book group, when we all formed, we're all um, Cambridge moms. And um, they said, okay, the first book we're going to read is Moby Dick. And I was really disheartened. I thought, oh, I don't want to read that book. It's so long. I know it's going to be boring. It's awful. And I was telling a friend of mine who's a writer, Allegra Goodman, I said, you can't believe what my book group is reading first. We're reading Moby Dick. And she said, oh, my God, you have to read it. You're going to love it. You have to read it. So I read the first chapter, and I was immediately hooked because Melville's writing is some of the most beautiful, evocative, and strange writing I have ever read in the English language. It's like I don't understand how his brain works. Or worked, I should say. But from a musical perspective, his the, the form of the book is so perfect and compelling. The, the action is so fast at the beginning, which replicates what they're actually doing. They're running around and getting ready to go on the whaling trip. And then in the middle, they're in the doldrums. And, you know, he goes off on a tangent and he tells this story about that ship. And, and he spends a whole chapter talking about all the different kinds of whales and dolphins there are. And it's really like I imagine it would be in the middle of the ocean on a whaling journey. You know, you what else are you doing? And then, of course, at the end, it speeds up again. So mm -hmm. it's perfectly structured in terms of proportion and form. And then just the actual turn of phrase is, I would read these sentences and just have to stop and think, that's the most beautiful sentence I've ever read. So you've said you don't compose on a computer, you don't use any kind of MIDI playback tool or anything, uh, and that you try to encourage your students to compose without computers, too. Could you say a little bit about that? Why, why is that? Well, uh, it's once again, it's for many reasons. But uh, in terms of the actual composing, I believe that composing is a linear and imaginative art. And we can't really understand what our music sounds like by hearing an external electronic sound source giving it to us. You lose... It, so I was thinking about this today. It's like writing a play and putting the play into some sort of Siri kind of 
playback and hearing what the play would sound like, you would lose nuance, you'd lose emotional content, you'd lose phrasing, you you would lose breathing, you would lose all of those things. And to me, those things are more important than the actual sound of the pitch, which, by the way, MIDI often doesn't even give you the correct sound. It gives you the, the actual pitch, but it doesn't give you the timbre of the pitch, the correct timbre of the pitch, because you need a human putting the reed in their mouth and blowing and all, everything that is encompassed by that. When you're writing orchestral music especially, MIDI doesn't accurately capture what the orchestration is going to be like, what the balance is going to be like. And, you know, some of my students tell me, well, it doesn't tell me how long my piece is. You know, if I, if I don't listen to MIDI, I don't know how long my piece is. And what I would say is, Listening to MIDI also doesn't tell you how long your piece is because it's not taking into consideration the human factor of breathing and phrasing and all of those things. The other thing I would say is, for thousands of years, composers wrote amazing music without hearing it externally first. They study music. They study, um, you know, since, I would say since about probably the 16th century, composers have learned from what other composers have done and built on that. And you, the, the goal is to be able to imagine what you want your music to sound like, hear it in your head, and then write it down. And that's what we all do. Um, that's what Stravinsky did. He imagined Rite of Spring, and then he wrote it down. He also did sit at the piano and play through things, which is kind of astonishing to me. <laughs> but, um, but Beethoven couldn't even hear for the last 15 years of his life. He heard his music in his head, wrote it down, and then gave it to the performers. So our task as composers is to imagine it, not to hear it externally necessarily, but to imagine it, to locate how we're hearing it in our heads, to write it down, and then give it to the performers. And the study of composition is to then hear the piece performed, learn what we did successfully and what we didn't do successfully, and then move on from there. MIDI doesn't give us an accurate representation of that, in my experience. And I can also always tell when my students have written something on the computer as opposed to trying to hear it in their head, because it always has a sort of awkwardly vertical square nature to it when they're not hearing it in their heads. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I personally also don't notate my music on the computer. I do everything by hand. I don't necessarily require my students to do that. That's a little bit um, above and beyond. But for me, the calligraphy is as important as the actual composing of the music. I take a lot of pride in my calligraphy. Um, my music looks the way I want it to sound. I feel a direct connection to it when I have the pen on the paper and I'm planning everything out on the paper. I have a connection to it in a way I wouldn't if I were doing it on the computer. So when I say all this, people then get this idea that I'm anti-computer and I don't use computers for anything, which is completely ridiculous. If I didn't have a computer, I probably couldn't teach because I put all of my stuff into our, you know, ol.berkeley.edu thing and, you know, all of my sound clips are online. You know, uh, computers are important. They're just not, for me, important for the creative part of the process. Hmm. You're teaching within two pretty different curricula between Berkeley College of Music and Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. Uh, and I'm curious, what does that difference look like for you as a professor? Uh, well, first of all, I've been at Berkeley for, I'm completing my 29th year at the end of this semester. And 
in 2007, yeah, 2007, a colleague at Boston Conservatory, a friend of mine, Dana Brayton, passed away suddenly. He had a heart attack. And they needed to find someone to take his place. And Andy Vores, who was the chair at the time, said, oh, you know, I've been wanting to find a way to get you in, but being full-time at Berkeley, I needed to get permission to teach at the conservatory. They gave me permission. Sometimes I worry that I was the cause of the merger because when Roger came, he brought me and Nancy Zeltzman and and Catherine Wright into his office and said, you three teach at both schools. How does this work? But anyway, um, I don't think I'm that important. But anyway, um, so what I would say is, at the conservatory, which I actually feel more at home at, the curriculum is very, with regards to composition, is very deep into the world of being a composer, a 21st century composer of concert music. Um, And all of the things that that encompasses, all of the study that that encompasses, and all of the artistic rigor that that encompasses. At Berkeley, you know, students don't usually even know that they want to do that if they decide to do it until, you know, their sophomore or junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, Berkeley, the curriculum is much more broad. I, you know, I teach students who do all kinds of things that I don't even really understand or I understand on some very rudimentary level. Um I don't teach a lot of composers at Berkeley. I have a couple directed study students who are composition majors, but otherwise I teach music history classes. I teach um, music theory, so the way it looks at Berkeley is counterpoint, tonal harmony one and two, things like that. So I'm basically teaching raw music theory skills to anybody and everybody here at Berkeley, and that takes a whole other mindset, a whole other skill set, basically, Mm -hmm. to do that. Because I have to try to find a way to make it real for those students. Um, And I love that challenge, actually, but it is a real challenge. It's Hmm. a difficult challenge. Is there an example you could give of that? Um, Yeah. Uh, Just happened in my counterpoint class before I came here. I had a student who, um, he said, so counterpoint, you're learning a lot of things that feel like rules, but I don't like to call them rules. They're techniques for how to write two simultaneous melodies that create um, implied harmony. And the student said, oh, but we have to just keep doing the same kinds of harmonies over and over again. When are we going to get to do different harmonies? And, And I said, you know, tonal music is actually just mostly motion back and forth between tonic and dominant function harmonies. But where the excitement happens is how you treat dissonance and how long you stay on that dissonance and how you go to the next dissonance and how you resolve that other dissonance. It's very linear-based music. And he looked at me and he said, oh, that, okay, now I understand that. That happens in this other music that I know. That happens in the in this third different kind of music that I know. And I could see the light go on for him, mm. that it wasn't just this boring tonic dominant stuff all the time, which, by the way, isn't boring. But <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you could get to a suspension and stay on the suspension for three measures if you wanted to do that and then finally resolve it. Enjoy the 
the tension that results when you do that. But then the the point is that you do then have to eventually resolve it, and then that's where the excitement is. And I could see that he was thinking of other pieces of music from his world, which is, you know, I think he he's very interested in R&B and things like that. I could see that he was hearing in his head music that did what I was describing to them. Mm-hmm. And that I live for those light bulb moments with Berkeley students. That's great. The last question I wanted to ask you is, what is either the most common advice you find yourself giving to college and conservatory students or else your favorite piece of advice? Wow. <laughs> I think my favorite piece of advice and the most common piece of advice is they're all very creative people, both the college and the conservatory. Everybody here at Berkeley is a creative person, and they desperately want to remain creative, and they desperately are so protective of their creativity that they think that when you start to give them skills and discipline, that their creativity is somehow going to disappear. So my favorite piece of advice is it's impossible to be truly creative and truly imaginative without the discipline and the skill set and the craft. You also can't have craft without art. So the the thing I find myself saying over and over again is that if you want to be a true artist, you have to have the perfect marriage of craft and art. You have to have the perfect marriage of technique and intuition. You can't have one without the other, and you have to have both in equal measures. Marty, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you. You can hear more music by Marty Epstein, including the full piece used in this episode, Oil and Sugar, on her SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash Marty Epstein. And if you're in the Washington, D.C. area on March 16th, you can catch Guerrilla Opera's free performance of Marty's opera, Rumpelstiltskin, at the Kennedy Center. This episode was engineered by Tony Brown and Brandon Pachajan in partnership with The Burn. Our theme music is You Made Me by Sleeping Lion. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley. And by the way, I was the only one in my book group who finished it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go.